welcome to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, Feminist Coffee Hour on iTunes, at FemCoffeePod on Twitter, and you can send us an email at feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Karen. And I'm Elizabeth. And today we have a really fantastic guest on who we're really excited to talk to about their new book coming out in April, uh, Amanda Marcotte. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I am a politics writer for Salon.com, and my book is called Troll Nation, and it has a long subtitle that I won't repeat because I don't remember all the words in it. We'll include it in the show notes. Uh, Welcome back to the podcast, Amanda. We spoke to you under the unfortunate circumstances of about, I think, three weeks after the 2016 election, but we're glad that you have a book coming out under much happier times. It's the same topic. That's, that's true. <laughs> How the hell did Donald Trump get elected, basically? Yeah, I think people are still pretty baffled. <laughs> so what are what are some of your insights? Well, I mean, the book kind of goes like both before and after the election, but the main kind of point of the book is that I have, I think, an argument that a lot of people will find risable, but the idea is that the American right has kind of lost a lot of the arguments, ideological like arguments. And all that's left then is sort of angry resentment and trolling. And that's how Donald Trump got elected, how he governs, you know, everything about him is just this sort of pure wah, 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 why can't we be in charge? We can't actually articulate a reason that we should be in charge like that we have better ideas or anything that works in that sense. So what's left is trolling, complaining about political correctness, like trying to disguise bigotry, racism, sexism, things like that, as arguments about the left is too righteous and too pure and they need to be trolled. And it's it's very much the Gamergate 4chan mentality, but like the entire Republican Party has been taken over by it. I think this might be the first mention of Gamergate on our podcast, so <laughs> I don't know if we're going to get flamed now. <laughs> uh, I think it's over now. Yeah. Mm. Well, in part because they went mainstream, right? Right. Good point. <laughs> and they're not on Twitter anymore. Well, I mean, Milo's not on Twitter anymore, so <laughs> yeah. worry. Right. Um, Amanda, I think that was interesting when you said that the right has lost the ideological arguments. I don't know if you want to get into which arguments they are, but I thought that was interesting because something that I see popping up in these kinds of internet debates are liberals and leftists saying, there's a HuffPo article that's called this, but just, I can't make you care about other people. You know, Republicans are coming out with these, well, if you can't afford healthcare, you deserve to die, something like that. And when someone is coming at politics from a very cruel and misanthropic point of view and bigoted point of view, you can't argue the merits of a policy proposal when, to me, it almost becomes a moral argument. Is that what you were talking about, about ideological debates? Yeah, in that sense, that's true. I mean, I I think that that's part of what has happened here is, you know, I would say the kind of er values of America are like largely liberal values, democracy, freedom, equality, things like that. And conservatives would tell you that they believe in these things. And for a long time, I think that a lot of conservative arguments were about our ideas are a better way to achieve these kind of er values, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's been disproved or rejected broadly by the United, like 
yes, a lot of voters vote for Republicans still, but not for those reasons. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me because I don't, I couldn't tell you when the tipping point was. Maybe it was the Bush administration just sort of put the nail in the coffin. When he came after Social Security, that was particularly brutal. It, it showed that the public at large does not buy this notion that free market economics are going to like be our saving grace in terms of like economic security. Polling data like political science shows that even half of Republican voters reject their ideas about social safety net and tax cuts. Republican voters don't vote for conservative ideas. They vote for well, conservative ideas in the more traditional sense. Mm-hmm. They vote for resentment and bigotry. So what are some of the examples of resentment and bigotry that they've been shown to endorse? You know, I think Donald Trump is really the perfect example of this. He ran on what I think Jamel Bowie called an ethno, a white ethno state, like welfare state, right? Right. He ran on this notion that Medicaid and Medicare and Social Security and things like that were untouchable. He he railed against Wall Street, mm-hmm. but he was also incredibly racist. And so it's hard to sort of piece together an argument from his demented ramblings yeah really. <laughs> but as far as you can mm-hmm. it was like i'm gonna sort of stand up for white america against some sort of elite that thinks diversity is like a good idea and like i also get into the book um a little bit into the religious aspect of this which i think is interesting mm-hmm. like the religious right for a long time for like better or worse had an argument and their argument was in so many words, patriarchy is good for people. It was traditional family is good. They would argue that women are happier in the traditional Mm -hmm. family home, that we need to, you know, and the only voice in the mainstream for that anymore is Ross Duthat. (laughs) I'm serious. Like you think about, there used to be a lot more of that conservative, like, Mm -hmm. and at least there was an argument. At Mm -hmm. least they had Mm -hmm. a point of view, which was, that family values matter, that tradition creates stability. You could see their argument, but then they all went and voted for Donald Trump. <laughs> and he, he's been divorced three times. He mm-hmm. clearly doesn't, like, insofar as these kind of traditional, like, conservative arguments, they've been drained of all meaning and argument. Well, he's still patriarchal, though. Yeah, he yeah. Hasn't, he hasn't become less patriarchal. No. You've just become less traditional. <laughs> exactly. And, and I think that's what I'm trying to sort of get at, which is like the argument for it is gone, right? Mm-hmm. Like why should men be dominant? There used to be an argument for it. Mm-hmm. Now it's just because that's why stupid feminists and like <laughs> trying to dunk on you with a meme, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like I feel like there's something been kind of lost on the right mm-hmm. in that way. Right. So instead of coming at it like this is a – moral fabric that holds our society together this nuclear family unit it's more just like well we're dropping that pretense we actually just do really like the patriarchy part yeah i think i saw somebody um online i don't i wish i could remember who said conservatism has been reduced to a series of irritable gestures (laughs) (laughs) like it's like stand for the flag why there's not an argument for it you know Mm -hmm women's roles, men roles, not actually an argument for it anymore. And so Trump is willing to get up and and say God and, and talk about God, but he clearly has no 
interest in any kind of theology, and he doesn't engage in it, and nobody expects him to. His idea of patriotism is a series of empty gestures that has no connection to larger issues of responsibility and duty to nation, obviously, because he's like corrupt as hell. Yeah, and also he's he's done very little to protect troops abroad while still claiming this like conservative, like, I care more about the troops than liberals do. Exactly. I mean, I don't like to hammer the reality TV thing too much, but it really is that, like... It's a perfect metaphor because you're saying that conservatism has been reduced to obey me because shut up, that's why. That's as empty as his dumb reality show, so. Yeah, it's like The Bachelor (laughs) portrays itself as a show about love. Right, right. And it's like love is some red roses and hotel rooms and like jacuzzis. It's like a bunch of symbols that are are utterly devoid of meaning. Right, and totally scripted. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, also, I mean... He still also fires everybody or someone once a week. (laughs) So there's that parallel as well. (laughs) Yes, and he tries to hype actual political events and decisions as if they were TV show episodes on Twitter. This is our reality, America, so... Very network. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, it's not just Trump, to be clear. Like, I think, for instance, while we're recording this, there's a lengthy debate going on right now about the fact that the New York Times op-ed page has been having one after David Brooks, Barry Weiss, like it seems like the only thing that the conservative columnist can write about is a handful of campus leftists whose ability to engage the debate isn't to the liking of conservatives. But it's so fascinating to me because all they're doing is trolling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> First of all, it's a fake debate. Like there's not actually a, any threat. All the data shows that college kids are more pro free speech than almost anybody else and you know I don't want to get into it completely I'm sure listeners are already well aware that it's a bullshit debate (laughs) and it's like why do they want to just endlessly debate this fake threat to free speech because they can't actually debate their own ideas yeah so it's like a way to promote their ideas without actually engaging and it's much easier to to take down a 19 or 20 year old who's just starting out in politics and just starting out in activism and still trying to figure out their views of the world than it is to engage their counterparts in age and experience, I would say. You don't see, for example, the nation talking about what random campus review papers are, are talking about. And for good reason, because it's nonsense and it doesn't make sense for serious, you know, political thinkers and writers to go after, you know, Young Republican clubs. No. <laughs> that would be ridiculous if they did. It wouldn't, it, it's I nonsense. Mean, I do, you see people cover some of the college Republican stunts, but they're very rarely in some sort of pearl clutching, like youth, the youth today is lost. Right. And, and what's funny about that is college Republicans are a much more serious threat because mm-hmm. when you actually dig your claws in, there's like some serious fascism being inoculated on campuses. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how like large the threat is, but there's certainly organized efforts from adults with money to encourage young people on campus to embrace fascism as an Mm -hmm. ideology. But no, campus leftists who get a little too exuberant and yelling at racists, that's the problem. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think the the campus free speech is just such an interesting debate. There's so much that limits the free speech of academics who are actual academics on campus, both just professionally, internally, but also from the right wing. There are many campaigns that kind of 
flood campuses administrations whenever a public academic speaks ill of the alt-right that have led to professors losing their tenure track positions and losing standing what about their free speech yeah it, and it's, so it's, it's very nakedly hypocritical <laughs> i mean not to go down the like rabbit hole too much mm-hmm. but the state of texas the campuses especially have been getting trolled really bad by white supremacists like um, a group called Vanguard America or a Patriot Front, they're always changing their stupid names, had a torchlight rally at UT Austin, and then they have been spreading white supremacist flyers all over Texas State University. They had another torchlight rally at the Alamo. Mm -hmm. You know, they got run off a campus because they are not students there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so if they were, that would maybe be a different issue, but they're clearly coming onto campus trying to recruit students. Mm -hmm. The Texas Republican Party's response to this was to have a hand-wringing hearing at Texas State University, not at the Capitol building, but at Mm -hmm. Texas State University, about threats to free speech on campus. I watched the stupid hearing. I just sat there. This is the punishing life of a journalist sometimes. (laughs) I sat there watching it. watched it so we don't have to. Yeah, this live stream of it. And like, (laughs) they never came up with a single example of actual... Squelched, curtailed speech on campus. It was like the the idea of it, and I'm like, to me, to my mind, it's so obvious what they're doing, Mm -hmm. right? Which Mm -hmm. is, you know, campuses have a reason to keep white supremacists from causing trouble on campus, like coming on a campus and trying to start fights. That's what they're doing, and the fact that the Texas GOP responded this way strikes me as giving cover to white supremacists. They definitely were, but I mean, I guess I'll ask you a question. I think I know the answer to. But did they ever talk about perhaps the chilling effect on local anti-racist activists, maybe campus anti-racist activists, the chilling effect it would have on them to have a bunch of white supremacists do a torchlight march through campus? No. <laughs> oh, okay. No. Too no. bad. And the thing is, that's really interesting is when you watch the hearing, there was a well-represented groups, and this I think is something that is worth looking into and just sort of thinking about more. There were a lot of people from a group called Empower Texans there, and they are kind of a shadowy, dark money group that's being funded by a bunch of oil billionaires that have spent a great deal of money hiding their identity in the state. So when I say that, like, this stuff goes to the top, it's not even that well hidden. It's just, you know. So what would you say to maybe somebody like my mom or uh, this is my hypothetical mom? But, like, if somebody of an older generation might say, like, this is some kid in his basement flaming someone who's a celebrity who had this wild opinion on the Internet. So you kind of, like, made the connection between the top and the bottom. But how how is the person flaming someone on Twitter connected to this kind of activism? Well, I mean, the most obvious example, of course, goes back to Donald Trump, who treats trolling as the way to govern, mm-hmm. right? So many decisions are made to just sort of be maximally, like, offensive and to, to garner reactions. Like, you know, I would say, for instance, his, like, attacks on the NFL protests are trolling. Mm-hmm. That's trolling. And... It's no different than the jackals on the internet (laughs) yelling at people. Like, the majority of energy that Republicans and conservatives put in promoting themselves, marketing their ideas, is not about marketing their ideas anymore. It's about painting the left as hysterical PC ninnies 
who you need to thumb their no your nose at them to sort of put them in their place and like pretending they're edgy rebels <laughs> while never actually and it it's this very time consuming thing that really doesn't ever engage ideas anymore. And I mean, I, this has been going on for a while. I mean, Sarah Palin was a really good example of this. Like everything was about, you know, for better, lack of a better term, identity politics, right? Mm -hmm. This like white America, we're the real Americans and they're trying to take this country from us. And, you know, we're just in rebellion of this. And if you don't see it going to the top, I recommend just flipping on the Fox news any day. And like, 90% of the segments are about leftists out of control, like, you know, what's wrong with being white? What's wrong with Western civilization? You know, neener, neener, neener. And not really engaging. Actual critiques. Yeah, and, and also not advancing arguments. Mm -hmm. Right. I was just thinking about how, you know, they almost create this thing where either people on the left are either these oversensitive, cowardly people hiding under their bed, because they're afraid of seeing a Republican or a MAGA hat or something. But then on the other hand, when you get the people who are more radical, who are more willing to, you know, put their bodies on the line, like Antifa people, then all of a sudden the left is this huge, like, thing causing violence and it's going to destroy the country. They don't engage anyone in between those two ends. Yeah. One of which is definitely imaginary. <laughs> and the other which I think is misunderstood, so... And the argument is never about what the argument's about, right? Mm -hmm. So I was listening to some podcasts and they were talking about uh, the response on Fox News to the Parkland student protest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting listening to the segment they played because all it was was like this concern trolling. Like, oh, kids should be in school. <laughs> like, isn't this interrupting their education? Or what if they feel pressured to go into the protests? <laughs> like, peer pressure's bad. <laughs> and uh, no, this was really what the, like, the whole mm -hmm. segment, because they're afraid to engage the actual argument, which is guns. Mm -hmm. Should we have better gun control in this country? Mm -hmm. They can't anymore. And I feel like in a lot of the ways, it's because I feel like they don't think they can win that argument. So they change the subject to... Pointless concern trolling. So this is where I struggle, is that there are a significant number of conservative people, not just kind of conservative thought leaders, who feel that they should not have any control around their guns. If you use the phrase gun control, they have a wild response. Yeah. Whereas if you say, like, background checks... You can get a hit or miss response because actually background checks are overwhelmingly supported by the American public. It's fascinating to me because there's very simple data that shows fewer guns equals fewer homicides, like a direct effect. And what's fascinating to me is you get guns because you're afraid of crime. Guns cause crime. Get more guns because there's more to protect yourself against. And it's so, it's so fascinating to me. This connection keeps getting made in the same way because these thought leaders are like, they want to take your guns because they're scared of you having a gun. You know, they want to take your guns because they don't like your right to free speech of guns. <laughs> free gun speech. You know, and I think, I think it's really interesting how effective that is. And it goes back to, I think, some of these larger issues. Uh, Scientific American had a really good blog post where they looked at the research on who owns the majority of guns in this country. Mm -hmm. And... You know, having grown up in rural Texas, this comports with my sense of these things. And it is increasingly about these inchoate 
emotional reactions mm-hmm. to the quote unquote left, right. which mm-hmm. is racialized in this way. I think a mm-hmm. lot of white liberals don't understand for conservatives when they think of the left, they specifically think of like people of color and white people they consider kind of race traders for, you know, if mm-hmm. I want to use a risable right. term, right. but that's how they talk about a lot of white mm-hmm. liberals. And mm-hmm. like, they may not use that phrase. white genocide. I mean, even yeah. worse than <laughs> It took me so long to realize that white white genocide just meant interracial couples. Yes, I am white genocide. <laughs> That's always been the fear, right? Yeah. Yes. It's me. I'm your worst fear, guys. My dad's a Latino immigrant, so I'm I am white genocide. <laughs> I fear me. You're walking white genocide. <laughs> yes. So do you think this idea that you have it I agree with it that, you know, Donald Trump is just the logical progression of where the conservative movement has been going since at least the 80s, if not before then. But do you think that this idea provides any, I guess, pointers to how people who are running for state and local office this year in the midterms can kind of target their campaign messaging? What's funny is when I wrote the conclusion in the book, I I was in a real sour mood, continue to be in a sour mood. I'm angry all the time. And I just was like, I really wish I had more of an answer for some of these questions. Uh, And I don't even remember what I concluded. I was like, here's a couple things to be hopeful about. Right now, my sense is it seems to me that because they don't, the right doesn't want to talk about the issues, then that should be a place where we keep bringing the question around. I mean, I realize there's real media problems with that. Hillary Clinton uh, tried to talk about the issues. Mm-hmm. She ran a very issue-centered campaign, mm-hmm. and it got swamped with bullshit. Mm-hmm. So that is a problem. I think for presidential candidates run into unique amounts of media nonsense like that. Mm-hmm. Local and state candidates, I think, have a better opportunity to sort of run issues-based campaigns. Mm-hmm. And I think that we're seeing the effects of that right now. I mean, I do believe a lot of the the Democratic wins that are racking up are anti-Trump. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's because the Democrats are weirdly falling back on a pretty good strategy, which is like run issue-based campaigns, mm-hmm. run candidates that are sort of locally cultivated, mm-hmm. and people will respond to that. And I, I suppose it feels boring. It's not boring. It's just what we should be doing every year. Yeah. <laughs> it's something that's been procrastinated, let's say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, to be fair, the left also sucked into culture war issues. And when I say culture war, I often point out to people culture war issues are real issues. Mm-hmm. It's just I think the left engages culture war issues more honestly, you know, talks about what the actual impact is. And that's a, a piece of advice I'd give anybody. Mm-hmm. I've been trying to follow it more as a writer. Like, maybe get a little less out of the, like, talking about these things philosophically or abstractly and impact, you know, based mm-hmm. arguments. Like, I support this policy because of the impact on these human beings. Here are these human beings. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I do think liberals can kind of get in our own head a little bit. And we need to remember to connect it to people. I think also one thing that we have going for us is that I do think that Donald Trump has a a rare ability to never think before he talks. And so I think what really helped that really helped him in his campaign, where he could constantly, even if he tried to pull it back to the issues, he would say something outrageous. And then that was all you could focus on. And it was very hard to pull it back. That's actually very difficult to do for most people who are 
who have it together enough to run a campaign in a local region, most people would be more aware that they're doing that actively as opposed to Donald Trump for whom it seems to come naturally. And so I think it might be much easier to have a more, to bring it back to issues-based discussions with somebody who's less distractible, <laughs> naturally distractible, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, yeah there's, a, <laughs> there's a theory that the numbers that he gave to that reporter for our tariffs, he just pulled out of thin air when they asked him. So, oh, I'm sure. Yes, yeah, he's bragged about doing just that. Exactly, yeah, and gaslighting Trudeau. But people in the future will know whether or not those magic numbers that he made up on the spot were actually going to affect our trade policy. But what Karen was talking about reminded me of something that we talked about previously, which is that I think that... What's that psychological effect called where you want to say the same thing everybody in the table said? Bandwagon. Yeah, like bandwagon. I think that there's very strong pressure on politicians who are... That's one of them. I think we talked about this before. There was this study where everybody's confederates except one person, and they would have like a math problem. Oh, like the ASH Yeah, the, the ASH the conformity, conformity experiments. Yeah. Yes, the ASH conformity experiments. Mm-hmm. And they found that if everyone at the table said the wrong answer, the person who's the actual test subject would give the wrong answer, even if they knew the right one, and if they knew they were saying the wrong one, just because so they didn't be the only person saying something different. I think that politicians have a lot of conformity pressure when they're talking to voters, mm-hmm. because if you're just ringing doorbells or walking around your local carnival talking to people, you have no idea what they're going to say, what they're going to ask, what they mm-hmm. think. And I've just seen this in my own experience volunteering for local campaigns, where something will just pop out of someone's mouth not because they thought about it, but because it's what they thought that the voter wanted to hear. And that doesn't necessarily make them a bad person. I think that's a normal psychological, I don't know, bug or feature of, of, of how the human brain works. And I think there's ways around that, practicing talking points and thinking about policy ahead. But it's almost kind of hard to counter a right that is made of nothing with if you're running a substantive campaign, but the, the actual what that looks like day to day interfacing with voters. Another struggle that I think Democratic politicians are up against more and more is that I I think Donald Trump did expose that people like that feeling of authenticity, even though he's actually an empty shell and there's nothing authentic about him. But I am continually shocked how often people, both on the left and the right, seem to not realize that politicians are human beings. This notion that politicians lie and that they're all inauthentic liars is so baked in Mm -hmm. that it actually allowed Trump, who is a (laughs) continuous nonstop liar, Mm -hmm. come across as honest because he seemed different than other politicians. And, like, Mm -hmm. that's super weird. But, you know, I don't know how to fix that problem, but... I think it's something that Democrats need to think a lot more about because in 2018, it's not going to be a problem, but it's going to be a problem going forward. I agree with you. The last time I agreed with a Republican op-ed was a guy who wrote for Newsday saying that everyone should volunteer for a campaign to see how the sausage is made. It's just like Veep, spoiler. (laughs) Um, but (laughs) But yes, politicians are people, even if they aren't good at acting like a real person, even if they act a little bit like a robot. If you see someone campaigning, ask them a real question. Try to see what they say. But yes, they're human beings. That's the, the paradox of authenticity, though, when you're on camera. Because most people's authentic response to a camera is to freeze up and be robotic. That you actually have to be very inauthentic to come off as authentic. It takes a lot of practice to yeah. be your authentic self on camera. Yeah. 
Or you could just accept that your on camera self is a separate persona that you put on. That yeah, I mean, on, on some level, <laughs> as well. That, that is a skill. That is a skill. That, that's something that we talked about just talking on a on a podcast. I had experience doing like telemarketing, and that that's a thing that you just put on. And I wasn't not myself at work. Would you say that, Amanda? You do salon live interviews, right? Yeah. I've- done my fair share of TV and it gets easier Mm -hmm. for sure because it's a skill like any other. I mean, you can always go down the rabbit hole. I always think the word authentic is like inherently kind of bad bullshit word. Like there's no such thing as authentic. Like, like you said, you're just different versions of yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, I think being on camera now is a lot easier than public speaking a lot of the time, you know, and it's almost subconscious. Like when you're in a room, when you're talking to a room of hundred people, you'll be fine. If it's a thousand people, my legs will start shaking without me even noticing. Oh. And we're getting way off topic, yeah. but I do think it's it's interesting and it can kind of inform the way that people view these political debates. Mm-hmm. That you know, when you see them, whether you're you know at your local town hall with your local candidates doing their League of Women Voters debate or or watching it on TV. I agree with kind of your read on how this actually ends up relating back to our point, even though it is kind of also a tangent. But um, I guess the thing that I keep kind of coming back to and focusing on, back when Elizabeth and I first met, we were both pretty active on Reddit, and there was this kind of thing going on even back then about white supremacist organizations actively recruiting on the website, and that there were so many kind of casual users of the website that their experience of it was like, no, this is just some kid trolling. Yeah. But it was actually a, an organized effort. And I think this is one of the, the major distinctions and that I've mentioned before that I really feel is, is important to come back to is that, yeah, there are probably some teenagers that are getting swept up in this uh, who are just like, haha, somebody paid attention to me on the internet. Like, I got to rise out of somebody. Anybody thinks my ideas matter to them. But the organization of these things is actually very much tied to organizations that have existed prior and this is actually just kind of a marketing tactic in a way it is not for nothing that rules for radicals has become Solinsky's rules for radicals has Mm -hmm. become this like thing on the right like liberals don't give a crap about rules for radicals but he actually I think what has happened to a lot of right-wing organizers is they use this as a talking point and some of them actually bothered to read the goddamn book and they were like Oh, wait, trolling is actually an effective organizing tactic. I mean, I don't want to encourage it too much because it can be, it's inherently antisocial behavior a lot mm-hmm. of the time. But, like, it is true that Alinsky was right that trolling sometimes is, like, a very effective, like, organizing tactic. I mean, certainly as a feminist, like, pundit, I've used trolling plenty to sort of make a point or have some fun. Like, trolling MRIs is funny. And it drives home your point, like getting them to react in a way that shows who they really are and to get them out of their like talking points in their fake shell can go do more than like a hundred treatises about Mm -hmm. feminism. I mean, I'm not against trolling. It's like satire. You have to have clarity of purpose. Yeah, it's it's a tactic, not an ideology. (laughs) Yeah, I'm thinking of one meta troll where there's a photo of a man on a campus uh, sitting behind a nicely made sign that says, like, I believe male privilege is a myth, change my mind. And somebody had photoshopped it to say, 
I believe Pop Tarts are ravioli. Change my mind. <laughs> 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 like, <laughs> it was just so good. I don't know. It, it like it completely. Like, took the teeth out of it, you know? <laughs> I, mean, I think you could probably make a better argument that Pop-Tarts are ravioli. I could go there. I, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> I normally hate those debates, but I did like that meme. Yeah, no, that meme was really hilarious. There were a bunch of really the good original ones, but that one, one just said stuck with me forever because was... I was like, oh, my God, Pop-Tarts are ravioli. <laughs> I can't debate this. <laughs> I think I misread the original meme. I thought that he said, I believe Matt Clifford's just real changed my mind. I misread it because that was where my head was. And I was like, oh, that guy's cool. He's trying to get the trolls away from women. No, I was totally wrong. My partner saw the Pop-Tarts and Ravioli one first and then thought, the male privilege is a myth with a troll of that. That might be the most perfect example of meme culture. And I also kind of like that one because, like, no one was harmed in that trolling from the leftist perspective of it. Like, it's just like the sign is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can really just say that about any ridiculous belief you have. But yeah, I really do like the response of just kind of like the absurdism that points out that like, oh, this is like a strong troll. Like, it sounds like it's hidden or couched in these ideas of like, I want to debate with you, which mm-hmm. any woman who has ever used the internet might be aware of as a tactic. I just want to debate with you. Yeah. Can you just, I disagree, can you convince me? Uh, and and it, I think that's like critical on that free speech issue too, mm-hmm. because these right-wing speakers that they bring on these campuses mm-hmm. are just trolls. They're not there to actually engage in mm-hmm. a debate. Like mm-hmm. Richard Spencer is not there to engage a debate. Like, mm-hmm. Milo Yiannopoulos is not there to engage mm-hmm. a debate. Mm-hmm. But they're both great examples of how counter-trolling actually worked. So Richard Spencer, at the time of recording this, has kind of come out with a statement that Antifa has made his campus tours unfun and he doesn't want to do them anymore. Yeah. Except for, like, that only, like, five people have attended each of them. But like, I, <laughs> I strongly recommend dealing with these assholes with trolling them. Because, mm-hmm. like, people show up and they're angry and they take them seriously and that just adds to them. But I think, like, you know, David Nywert has a great blog post about this and he's told me about this. Like, a few years ago he was in Oregon. He went to cover for the SPLC, a neo-Nazi rally there. And this group of people showed up just dressed like clowns. <laughs> it's a video. It's great. It's so great. And they're, and they're hilarious because, like, every time they were like, white power, they would th- be like, white flower, and they'd throw a flower in the air. <laughs> and, like, it was silly. Mm-hmm. But it worked because these guys just got madder and madder. <laughs> the whole thing just fell apart. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's how you deal with these clowns. I mean, Dana Nessel is running for attorney general of Michigan, mm-hmm. and she put out that ad. I don't know if you've seen it where it says, you know, men are causing all the problems. Donald Trump's a man. Men are responsible the targets of Me Too. You should elect a woman. And it was very tongue-in-cheek and very silly, mm-hmm. but it was her actual first campaign ad for attorney general of the state of Michigan. So I was like, you know, feminist circle jerk is mainstream political discourse. I'm totally here for this. So <laughs> maybe that's something that the candidates should do this year. In 2020, it's going to be, like, Kristen Gillibrand's, like, presidential run. Her slogan will be male tears. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would wear that button. That would be a really cool button. Gillibrand 2020, male tears. <laughs> that would be great. Oh <laughs> but she can't even say that she experienced harassment without like, oh, people know. being assholes. So I don't know that she would be able to get away with trolling. <laughs> 
you know, but it's like maybe there's a lesson here that we should be a little less afraid. You know, I'm not seeing make male tears your campaign slogan. I am. (laughs) (laughs) But like, you know, I feel like insofar as Hillary Clinton did as well as she did, it was because she leaned into it a little bit more than she used to. Mm -hmm. And like, maybe just go even further. Like, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that will backfire. Like the big country, diverse coalition. But man. Yeah, it could go either way. But I think that's an interesting take on it because a lot of people are lamenting what Donald Trump has done to our discourse and to propriety and to people being nice to each other and polite and engaging in debate. But if you think about, you know, the premise of your book, a lot of that was gone anyway. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, people on the left are funnier and able to kind of might be able to make these points better with some, you know, sense of humor or like a wry point of view. And certainly I think even aside from just humor and trolling, like I think the thing that we've probably learned is that voters do respond to somebody who presents themselves unapologetically. There's something that seems dishonest and unauthentic about somebody who's always like kind of apologizing for themselves, Mm -hmm. even if it seems just like a subtle. Like Mitt Romney. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he should apologize for himself, but, (laughs) you know, like, Clinton always had that problem a little Mm -hmm. bit, was, like, she always seemed to, like, feel, like, a little slightly bad and guilty about being a feminist, which I know she doesn't feel. Right. Right. But, like, she had, like, a lot of women of her generation realized men will flip out on you if you don't just open up with an I'm sorry I'm talking apology mm-hmm. and like I don't know maybe it's still women are still behind the eight ball in many ways but I think that it's clear to me that Trump signals that like the voters are definitely done with that you know because he one thing that mm-hmm. guy is not is an apology like ever apologizing for himself and I think we could take some of that without being rude without being yeah bigoted or mean about mm-hmm. it just a, a way to tell the truth and and punch up at the forces that are bad for the American people. Karen's thinking of a question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm integrating what I'm hearing because on the one hand, we're also saying that the way to win elections is to focus on issues, but on the other, we're saying it's also trolling. So I'm Uh, I'm trying to like integrate these two thoughts into like a Well, I don't know that politicians shouldn't troll. I'm very much of this like sense that like, and liberals need to think very clearly about organizing outside of the party. This is like a huge thing for me. I could go on a very mm-hmm. big digression, but it's mm-hmm. one of the strengths that the Republicans have always had is organizing, is they organize outside of the party more than in it. Do you think the DSA counts? Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, not what my would ideal would be. I mean, I think, you know, if you have an issue that you care about, organize a group about that. And mm-hmm. use that group to pressure the party. But don't just try to, like, go straight to the party. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Black Lives Matter, I think, would be a better example of how this works. Mm-hmm. You know, they made their issue a central issue to Democratic the Democratic Party all outside of the party infrastructure. That's mm-hmm. how you work. So I also kind of wanted to talk a little bit, again, I'm, like, nervous about talking about this on our podcast. Maybe I won't name names, but, like, more dirtbag left kind of things going on and how is that in contrast or overlapping with right-wing trolling? Wow, that's another very good question that I hadn't thought about, but you're right. Like a lot of them are just like massively nasty trolls and and organized around the sort of 
same basic principle, which is like that hating liberals is the only value. <laughs> At least they sometimes try to tack on this kind of like argument about socialism, but as far as I can tell, most of my encounters with the dirtbag left, mm -hmm. they don't really actually have a well-articulated idea of what socialism is. Certainly that they would consider me not a socialist compared to them, she says they, they definitely don't have a well-articulated <laughs> idea of what socialism is. I mean, I think it's a, it's a good sign of like the way that the sort of our politics are going in a lot of ways that everything has become very tribal and about like hating other people and liberals I do think become the like target for all sorts of hating because they're the only group of like kind of ideology group left that doesn't in fact I would say the define the thing that defines liberals publicly as a group is that not any policy views necessarily but that they don't view themselves as organized primarily as in opposition to something else mm -hmm. right People that are called liberals or seen as liberals are often just sort of people that orient their politics towards solutions to problems like <laughs> as opposed to like conquering another group of Americans in some fundamental mm -hmm. way. And trying to like create community rather yeah. than to blame specific others for problems. Because when I see people calling themselves leftists, it's almost never based or in calling themselves leftists and defining somebody else as liberals on social media, just that. Mm -hmm. It's almost always about aesthetics and tactics, and it's not about views. And I know this because I'm constantly called a liberal, and I'm like, I guess. I mean, if it was based on policy, you'd probably call me a socialist, leftist, mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, certainly a radical, you know, and ways far more to the left than the dirtbag left, especially mm -hmm. on gender stuff, mm -hmm. you know. I'm like, abolish the nuclear family. <laughs> I think this is something that comes up in our conversation, mm -hmm. uh, Elizabeth and mine, a lot. Yes, we hold these very left-wing values, but that we are kind of technically liberals in certain ways. And how uncomfortable both of those labels really feel for us. Yeah, because I, I think I'm definitely more of a pragmatist at heart, which mm -hmm. I guess would, by definition, make me a liberal. But mm -hmm. if I took that questionnaire, it would probably say leftist. You know, one from column A, one from column B, you really can't. There's a meme going around about, are you a liberal, are you a leftist? I look at them and I say, okay, but what about pragmatism? What mm -hmm. about, you know, the tactics that you take to organize? And mm -hmm. I said this in our previous interview, I'm definitely skeptical of capitalism and there's a lot of critiques of it, but that's not my number one issue <laughs> right now is to destroy capitalism while I will probably agree with most critiques of it. So, mm -hmm. And for me, I think a lot of it that I kind of blurted out is possibly your reason, but turns out not to be. But like, I think a lot of it for me is like, okay, we're not dismantling capitalism, which would be a nice goal, but it's not happening. So what can we do right now? Yes, you know. Yes, that's probably one of my questions too, yeah. and I don't think that that's necessarily a bad question. Amanda, do you think that we've kind of conveyed to listeners why they'd want to read your book and what the premise is? Yeah, I think to a large extent. I mean, if I would say like the thing that the book really adds to it is like I have it sort of broken down into kind of like issue bases, right? Like I have a lot on political correctness. I have like a lot on racism. Guns. The book is really mostly about the culture war issues or what I broadly design, define as culture war issues because I do think that's where our political 
struggles are in this country for better or for worse. Like mm-hmm. each chapter I do try to bring it back to, around to which I think is like our argument, which is the right has kind of organized itself around this notion that pissing off liberals is the highest political goal. I don't know if I feel great about that or bad about that. It's not like I liked their traditional arguments much better, but like it obviously I is bad for the body politic mm-hmm. in general that we can't even, you know, everything's just a ugly tribalism. Right, because you can't engage with someone who doesn't have an argument. No. I mean, I don't know how much we ever did, but it's just been laid raw in a lot of ways. I feel like we've talked about this a bit as well between the two of us and that, like, I've had fantasies of, like, what would happen if I were interviewing, like, Milo Yiannopoulos? Because everyone who's tried it has failed. Yeah, like, he doesn't interview. I've done no. it, and he just, like, flips out on you. Yeah, and also he just claims he never said the thing that he said. And it's just like, well, what do you do then? Can you play him the audio? Is, is that, like, like what is that like, you know? Like, he just says he's saying the opposite thing of what he said. Or he's saying this other, like, he never sticks to a topic. Yeah. Or, or a viewpoint. And his audience doesn't care. No, they like that. Yeah, in fact, because the whole point is watching him own the libs and trigger the libs. Mm -hmm. And, like, that is very triggering for sure is having somebody be a glib, disingenuous asshole. Mm -hmm. And and it just gets boiled down to that. Like, does he have a political point of view? Not really. Mm -hmm. Outside of I have a category of people I've decided are liberals and I want to trigger them. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And the quickest way to trigger liberals, like anybody, is to be a dick. Right. He's a provocateur. (laughs) He provokes people, and then he gets mad at the reaction that he has that he provoked them. Mm. And it's it's repeat, the cycle. Yeah, and then it's like, I'm right, and the reason is because I provoked them. It's toilet discourse. Right. So on that note, where can people find your book? Uh, it's published by Skyhorse Publishing, um, and you can buy it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere, local bookstore, hopefully. I pre-ordered it at my local bookstore, so. <laughs> and where can people find you on the internet? I am at Amanda Marcotte on Twitter, and I write for Salon.com. You can find me at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And you can find me at uh, Karen, U-H-K-A-R-E-N. Thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you. The Political Flavored Feminist Coffee Hour podcast theme song is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth. You can listen to her music at soundcloud.com slash Bridget Ellsworth. And you can listen to her other songs there as well. And if you like what you hear, you can give her a like or even a follow.